This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 318th episode, which is the last one of 2020, hooray, it's finally over. <laughs> <laughs> we have a bunch of news, including a new sauropod and a new theropod, trying to get through a couple of the new dinosaurs discovered this year before the year ends. I have to clean up a little more in 2021. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Geniodectes, which is a really fun one to say. And we have a fun fact. But before we get into that, we want to thank some of our patrons. This week, we have a new patron to thank, and that's Brad Shelby. Thank you very much for joining our patronage and our Discord, for that matter. And rounding out our 10 shoutouts are Kelly, Jared Copeland, Scotty, Brendan Cavanaugh, Cameron, Stego Sophie, Trent Carbajal, The Tolbert Family, and Michael Raptor. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for sticking with us throughout the rest of this year, and we really appreciate all your support. And if you want to join our growing community, then go to our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Yes, indeed. It's been a good year. Maybe not in a lot of other ways, but <laughs> definitely in terms of our been, Discord community growing and everything. It's been a good year for our dinosaur community. Yes, I think so. So jumping into the news, I'm going to kick it off with the new sauropod, just for Sabrina. Nice. <laughs> I didn't even realize there was a new sauropod in this paper because the title doesn't even mention it. It talks about an extinction event about sauropods. And then I got into it. I was like, oh, there's a, there's, they just throw a new dinosaur. This is where we're at now. Dinosaurs are so commonly found that it's not even the headline of the paper. It's like extinction event stuff. Oh, and we also found a new dinosaur. Just in the mix. So this paper was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B by D. Pohl and others. And I just have to say, it's one of the best written articles I've read in quite a while. It's just, it was super easy to read a lot of times when it's a more complicated subject like this. It might take me a couple hours to get through and piece together different stories from other resources that they list. This one took like a half hour. It was so well written. I really liked it. Like I said, it includes a new sauropod from central Patagonia, also known as Argentina, and it's in the Cañadón Asfalto Basin. The asfalto is a little bit of a clue about the extinction event that happened because <laughs> it's just asphalt with an O at the end, if you can't tell by the way I'm pronouncing it. The new dinosaur is named Bagualia, not to be confused with Bagualosaurus. When I saw Bagualia, and I wasn't expecting a new dinosaur in this paper. They do this thing where they say novel genus and species in Latin to let you know that it's a new 
dinosaur that they're naming. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I swear we've talked about Bugwalia before. Maybe this is like a typo or maybe I just don't know what this means in Latin the way I thought I did. <laughs> so I had to look it up and then I realized, no, that was Bugwalasaurus, which was found in southern Brazil. And it's, that's the Ceratopsian one, right? This is also a sauropodomorph, but it is really more of a sauropodomorph than a true sauropod. It's pretty small and it was only about two meters or six feet long. Wait, which one? Bugwalasaurus. Oh, okay. Oh, what am I thinking of that was the Ceratopsian? I don't know. Yeah, me either. There are a lot of new dinosaurs. That's true. So Bugwalasaurus, just to finish up what Bugwalasaurus is before I get into Bugwalia, hopefully I'm not adding to the confusion. I realize I might be. But Bugwalasaurus is from the same general area as our next dinosaur that I'm going to talk about, and it's from the Triassic about 230 million years ago. So it's one of the very earliest dinosaurs. So as you'd expect for a sauropodomorph in the Triassic, it was very small and had the more general bipedal body plan that all of those early dinosaurs had. Now the new dinosaur, Bagualia, is very different. It's not like Bagualosaurus. It's about 50 million years later, about 180 million years old. Actually, I could say it is 180.3 million years old. That's specific. Yes, because we actually got a chance to do uranium lead dating with it so they could do the radiometric dating and get a specific age for it, which is really nice when that happens because sometimes the range of age is like 10 or 20 million years. So it's refreshing that we have an exact date for this dinosaur for once. Mm-hmm. The full name of Bagualia is Bagualia alba, and Bagualia also is after the word Bagual, which is the same as Bagualosaurus, which is a wild horse. It's also the name of the type location. So there you go. And they picked alba because that's dawn in Spanish. Because it's an early dinosaur? Yeah, it's not. But like I said, there's Bagualosaurus, which is 50 million years older. Mm -hmm. Really what it is is sort of the dawn of the eusauropods not the sauropodomorphs. Mm. And that's really what most of the paper focused on. But real quick, of Bagualia, what they found was the, quote, posterior half of skull articulated with seven cervical vertebrae, end quote. Which is really cool because a lot of times we don't find skulls of sauropods. And in this case, we found both the upper and lower jaw and a lot of the back of the head. Mm -hmm. So when you do the reconstruction of the skull, you have a very good idea of what it looked like. And it's, it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty fantastic for a sauropod, in fact. Definitely. They also referred a lot of bones from, quote, at least three individuals. And they just like, it's like a throwaway line with tons of bones in the mix. But they know that there were at least three individuals because there were three matching humeri. So like three left or right arms, basically. And we know each animal only has one <laughs> of each limb. So... There's at least three of them. They vary only about 15% in size. So I guess that means they're all roughly the same size and probably age. And they also, in addition to those three humeri, found some other limb bones, skull and jaw bones, teeth and vertebrae. It's a good find. It's a very good find. I wish there was more detail. It might have had more in the supplemental material. But yeah, that's a lot of information about this newly named dinosaur. It's really cool. Now onto the extinction event part of it, which was the whole... <laughs> headline part of the article. So basically, we know at some point in the Jurassic, sauropodomorphs transitioned from sort of a diverse group that had these small bipedal animals, larger quadrupedal animals, different sort of stances 
into a more unified group of what are called eusauropods, which includes everything. Pretty much everyone's favorite sauropod <laughs> is in eusauropoda. So it's got Apatosaurus, Diplodocus, Brachiosaurus, Titanosaurus, Brontosaurus, I should say, and lots of other big All the guys. large ones that everyone's familiar with. Yeah, pretty much. The only two that I really like that aren't in the group eusauropoda are Ladumahati. That was the one that was it predated eusauropods, and it was a little bit more sprawl-like mm-hmm. than eusauropods. And it was, I think, very early Jurassic. Maybe it was even very late Triassic, but really weirdly old for such a huge sauropodomorph. And then Platyosaurus I love, too, just because it's so important. Also a sauropodomorph and not a eusauropod. But other than that, basically all the favorites are in eusauropoda. So in general, people have been saying that the rise of eusauropods from more generic sauropodomorphs happened somewhere in the 180 to 170 million year ago time range. And we don't know exactly why or how or when and where, all that kind of stuff. We didn't have a ton of information. We just know when you look at the fossil record, by the time you get to 155 million years ago in like the Carnegie Quarry at Dinosaur National Monument, it's nothing but you sauropods. There's none of these little sauropodomorphs anywhere to be seen. And if you go back 200 million years ago in South America, it's tons of these little sauropodomorphs. And then, yeah, in between, it switched. Hmm. Before they realized how their growth could help them. Maybe, but it was probably forced Mm. (laughs) more so than like a directed thing. So this site in Argentina, the Cañadón Asfalto Basin, as I implied, the asfalto is asphalt, and there's a lot of asphalt-type material there because there was a massive amount of volcanic rock and a whole bunch of lava flowing out at the time period when that rock formed. This probably caused global warming with a massive increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide, Hmm. and that caused all sorts of crazy things to happen with the ecosystem, just as everybody's experiencing now, too. So during this time, what we think happened is that a lot of plants started to go extinct. So we had these large, larger, I should say, maybe more broad-leafed plants that were going extinct in Patagonia and being replaced by things with smaller leaves and a lot of things like conifers, which are much tougher plants like pine trees. Basically, they're harder to eat for a lot of animals. And especially for a lot of these non-eusauropod sauropodomorphs that had thinner jaws and they were sort of set up to chew soft plants mm-hmm. and just eat plants like we think about herbivores today, whereas eusauropods aren't really a lot like animals we know today that well, they, chew their food. Their <laughs> teeth are meant for stripping. Exactly. They're just shoveling in high fiber food and then letting their gut digest it. So they were really well set up for that. And then it turned out that 180 million years ago, there was this extinction event, which wiped out a lot of the plants that the other sauropodomorphs could eat. And the eusauropods were set up to eat this really difficult fibrous material, just strip it off, let the gut digest it. And all of a sudden that was most of the plants that were around. Hmm. So now all of a sudden eusauropods are perfectly set up to spread out and diversify and eat all the plants and grow bigger. (laughs) And that's basically what the authors are saying they think happened. You see that a lot after extinction events. Yeah, definitely. I hadn't heard of this one before though. I guess maybe it's because I'm not a super mega sauropod fan, but (laughs) I didn't know about this rise of eusauropods and that they had nailed it down into such a tight window. 
Interestingly, the researchers point out that this extinction event and this rise of eusauropods as the dominant fauna aligns with the early Torsian oceanic anoxic event, or maybe it's Toarsian. I'm not sure. I've only ever seen it written. And then right as we were preparing for this podcast, I was like, how do you say this word? <laughs> There's so many of these time periods. But this one is right around that 180 million year ago mark. And fortunately, it has an abbreviation, which is T-O-A-E. So I don't have to try to pronounce it anymore. But basically, Bagualia, they propose, is a post-T-O-A-E sauropod. And along with Bagualia, all of the eusauropods that were around in the post-TOAE period have long necks, they weigh over five tons, they have a deep skull and a deep jaw with a high bite force, which is good for that tough, fibrous plant material, and they don't look like they're sauropodomorph tiny ancestors. That's what you do when you take over. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, yeah. A couple of other features that these post-TOAE sauropods have in common is that their teeth have thick enamel, and a lot of times they show a lot of wear, probably because they were eating a lot of that high-fiber food. And those teeth are one more piece of evidence that maybe it was that shift in plants that allowed eusauropods to take over because of their dietary niche aligning nicely with it. So maybe flowers spelled out their doom? Well, I'm not sure, because... If you're capable of just inhaling any <laughs> type of vegetation mm. and digesting it in your gut, that probably still works pretty well, even if the stuff becomes easier to digest. Oh, that's true. But is it the right nutrients you need? Yeah, that's true. They were saying that some of these early sauropodomorphs, too, might have been a little more efficient at eating the less fibrous material because their jaws were less robust, so they could sort of chew easier when you don't need the ability to inhale and like strip off this tough fibrous material. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it did seem like once they established themselves, they were there for a good 100 million years plus. Just like other dinosaurs. Yep. <laughs> that was their way. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and just a lot of these events that happened to align with getting bigger too happened. If you're curious, phylogenetically, Bagualia is an early eusauropod, although not the most basal, which is a little surprising to me. It's closest to Spinophorosaurus and Nebulosaurus. There are others that are a little bit more basal, but it is obviously very early for a eusauropod. But like I said, there were already eusauropods around before the extinction event. That's how they were there, ready to take over after the extinction event. This was just one of the first ones that really was there in the forefront, taking advantage of that new niche. So there you go. One paper, it's got an extinction event, it's got a new sauropod, and it tells you all about how the big sauropods showed up later. Fantastic. It's a good paper. I think so, yeah. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. 
And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And up next, I have a new theropod. Guess you got to balance it out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This paper was published in the Journal of South American Earth Sciences and published by Rodrigo T. Mueller. And for the record, he is associated with a Brazilian university and it is a Brazilian find. So nice. it's an example of a non-controversial Brazilian (laughs) dinosaur being named. This one's named Erythrovenador. And I want to point out, I looked up the original Latin, or maybe just the Latin pronunciation of Venator, and it sounds more like Venator to me than Venator. I think it's the British influence that made it Venator rather than Venator. Maybe it's a Venator, although now that's harder for me to say again, (laughs) even though I used to always say it like that. (laughs) Probably depends on the dinosaur for you. I think so, yeah. And it probably depends on what the first half of the word looks like. You know, how well it flows into Venator versus Venator. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Erythrovenador is a new theropod from southern Brazil. As I mentioned in the last dinosaur, it's about 230 million years old. And the full name is Erythrovenator jacuiensis. Erythrovenator comes from Erythros, which is Greek for red, and then Venator or Venator, which is Latin for hunter. That's because the holotype bone is literally reddish. I always wonder when there's something named after a color now, if it's because we found a feather preserved with it with some melanosome, mm, and then we mm-hmm. think that the dinosaur was that color. But in this case, it's just literally the color of the bone that was preserved. And it was in a reddish mudstone. So that's how you know. And then Jacuiensis is after Rio Jacui, which is a nearby river. And I should have realized this earlier, but Portuguese pronounces their J's a lot more like French than Spanish. And I think as a result, I've mispronounced some of the other dinosaur names, assuming that it was like the Spanish J. Oh, I thought we looked up pronunciations beforehand. Some, uh, but they're not always available. True. So uh, yeah, I think I might've mixed some of those up. I should have known from Rio de Janeiro that that's that same kind of French J sound. Well, going forward. Huh? Yeah, I think I'll get it right. Or maybe you can correct me if I screw up, but... <laughs> 
Anyway, Erythrovenador is like a lot of Triassic finds from Brazil. It's really far in the south. It's near Uruguay and Argentina. And it's really about halfway in between Sao Paulo and Buenos Aires. So it's really far south. It's like practically in another country. I'm sure most Brazilian people have never been this far south <laughs> in Brazil because it's it's pretty remote. Unfortunately, they've only found one partial bone, and that's the top of a femur. And when I say partial bone, is very partial. It's only about 48 millimeters long in the longest dimension, <laughs> which is under two inches. So yeah, it's like something you can fit on a business card, basically, is the side of this bone. Someone had a good eye. Yes, especially considering it matches the color of the mudstone that mm -hmm. it's in and everything. Yeah, that does, now that you point that out, though, that does make me a little bit hopeful that maybe they'll find more. Maybe it's just hard to find in the mudstone. I just need to dig deeper, <laughs> look harder. Fortunately for the researchers, the top of the femur is one of the most diagnostic spots to distinguish dinosaurs from other Triassic creatures because they have a pretty unique femur. And in this case, there's a spot called the Lesser Trochanter, which looks more like a typical theropod. They describe it as pyramidal, they describe it as pyramidal or triangular sometimes. It's where the puboischiofemoralis muscle attaches. You might be able to tell by the name puboischiofemoralis that it connects the hips to the femur. And that pyramidal shape of that muscle attachment point is a really good clue that you have a dinosaur, and specifically a theropod. However, Erythrovenator is missing the, quote, raised dorsolateral trochanter, end quote, also known as the greater trochanter. I like it because it's the late, <laughs> the greater trochanter and the lesser trochanter. <laughs> is that, but that's because it's raised? Well, it's called the greater trochanter, whether or not it's raised, but it's basically when you look at the femur, it's that top part, not the part that goes into the socket of the hip, mm. but off to the side, there's a little bit of a bump and like way on that opposite edge from the ball and socket joint, there's this extra bump. And that extra bump on like, kind of like the shoulder of it is the greater trochanter. Down a little bit from that is the lesser trochanter. Okay. And I think it's called the greater trochanter just because it's bigger, but it also is greater in another way. And that's that there are two different muscles that attach there. There's the pubo ischiofemoralis that attaches there, just like it does on the lesser trochanter. But on the greater trochanter, the ischiotrochantericus also attaches there. So it's got two muscles attaching to the same trochanter. Try saying that 10 times fast. I don't even know if I said it right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, trochanter basically just means a bump on a bone where a muscle attaches. And it's a large part of how we identify which dinosaurs are which and whether or not they're even dinosaurs. But weirdly, all of these dinosaurs, all the theropods have this raised greater trochanter, and this one doesn't, hmm. which makes it either a unique theropod, which is what they're saying, or in my opinion, maybe not a theropod. Because if every theropod has this thing, and you don't have it, are you still a theropod? But it's one of those really early theropods. Exactly. So it's a question of where do you draw the line of like which one's the first early theropod and which one's the last non-theropod before theropods evolved. And they're arguing that this is the first, one of the first theropods. It's one of those things that's hard to know because the only way you would know for sure is if you knew about all the other animals that existed around that time there was that shift 
And we have no way of knowing because there's so many fossils yeah. found. Yeah, that would definitely help. But even then, like, where do you draw the line and which one is in which category? It's just like a language choice, really. So usually they pick these things by saying it's more closely related to X than Y and then go from there. But yeah. Anyway, Erythrovenator is somewhere in the 234 to 225 million year old range. I said earlier, it's like roughly 230. That's just kind of splitting the difference. And that makes it among the earliest known theropods at all. I think the oldest known true theropod is currently considered around 231 million years old. So if it's on the older end of the scale, it'll be the oldest. And if it's not, it's still one of the oldest. So obviously very important for early theropod research. It's hard to know the exact size of erythrovenator because we just have that tiny little piece of a femur. But in one interview, the researcher said it was about two meters long and about 10 kilograms. So that gives you a rough estimate. Obviously, you take that with a huge grain of salt because you have this tiny fragment of a bone. So Right. Could end up being like a Dinochirus situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who knows what else was on this animal. I guess since it's an early theropod, there wasn't a whole lot of different stuff going on among the different individuals that we know of, but there were definitely some weirdos in there. Given that it's just this tiny fragment, the phylogeny is really, really sketchy. They talked about how they put it into a matrix with like 270 variables, and it's like, how many variables do you have from this bone though? Like three? Because <laughs> what can you, you don't even have a, a length of anything. It's a fragment in every dimension. So anyway, it came out as the most basal theropod in their phylogenetic analysis. It's not surprising since it's missing a feature that all other theropods have, and that's mm -hmm. basically the only way you can make that happen. That means that it's more basal than things like Coelophysis, Lillian sternus, and Zupasaurus, which isn't unbelievable since it is probably older than all of them. There are other non-theropod Saurischians from that age, though, and probably older. So again, if you get the semantics about one of those becoming a theropod included in the mix, then all of a sudden it's not the oldest. Interestingly, it's from the same layer as the cynodont Sirius Nathus. And in fact, in that layer, there are more cynodonts than anything else. Hmm. So again, we're still early enough in the Triassic that dinosaurs are not <laughs> dominating the e ecosystem. It's a cynodont fauna at that point. And if you're not familiar with cynodonts, they're early reptile-looking mammalian ancestors. And my fun fact goes into more of that. I really hope that they get back there and they can find more of these erythrovenator bones because it's obviously a very important dinosaur. Definitely. Although it seems really difficult to find because it's a very remote area, like many places you go excavating for dinosaur fossils. And then when you get there, the bones blend in. Yeah, you have fragmentary bones in the same color as the material you're looking for. It's, yeah, <laughs> not the easiest. It's still cool. I'm glad they found this one bone. In other news, in Rapid City, South Dakota, Dinosaur Hill's getting renovations, so the city's going to be spending $2.5 million to upgrade their pedestrian routes and make the park more accessible. The park was built in 1936, so seems about due. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to start construction in 2022. Looking at current pictures, it seems like it'll be a pretty fun park, but there is a steep set of stairs to get up to the two dinosaur statues so I can see how they need more accessibility. Yeah. 
If you're into graphic novels, there's a new one coming out next July called Operation Dragon, and it's this alt-history action adventure where Japan has a dinosaur army in World War II. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And the description reads, quote, Set in the Pacific during World War II, three American soldiers, a disgraced ex-cop, a mobster trying to escape his past, and an intelligence officer with mysterious motives come together for a mission of a lifetime. Their lives are turned upside down when they uncover Japan's top-secret superweapon, a deadly force of trained dinosaurs. Feast on a mashup of wisecracking noir and butt-kicking action in this sci-fi pulp adventure as soldiers take on the Jurassic Giants. <laughs> That's very interesting. Sounds epic. I, I feel like somebody read Godzilla and thought, what if Japan harnessed the power of Godzilla for their own ends? And that's what they came up with. Could be. That's not the feeling I got reading the origins of this, but. Why Japan in World War II with dinosaurs? That's what made me think of Godzilla. Oh, that's, that's a, whole a good point. Yeah. Connection. But Yeah. Well, sounds like an interesting series. It does. It seems like you might want more than three people to try to combat them, though. I think those are just the three main people. <laughs> okay, hopefully. Maybe they train their own dinosaurs. Hmm. Who knows? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Jenny Odectes, which was a request from Real McCoy's 9 via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. Jenny Odectes was a ceratosaur theropod that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Chubut Province in Argentina in the Cerro Barcino Formation. The type species is Jenny Odectes cerus, and the genus name means jaw bite, and the species name means late. What other things could bite besides jaws? Seems a little redundant, Jenny Odectes. Hmm. Is it going to be an arm lift dinosaur and a <laughs> leg walk dinosaur too? I mean, I'd, I'd take that up with the root of the language. It sounds cool, Jenny Odectes. It does. So the holotype of Jenny Odectes includes part of the snout, the premaxilla, parts of the maxilla, the right and left dentary, the teeth, and more. And it's actually a really fun picture of basically the two sets of teeth here. So it's not well-preserved. Some of it is articulated. It was a carnivorous dinosaur, and it had these large protruding teeth. Similar to Ceratosaurus, they're long and curved. And the way the teeth are arranged in the premaxilla is unique. It's only seen in, actually, Ceratosaurus before this. But the difference between Geniodectes and Ceratosaurus is Ceratosaurus had three teeth in each premaxilla, and Geniodectes had four. 
Geniodectes is estimated to be 20 and a half feet or 6.25 meters long and weigh 1,740 pounds or 790 kilograms. That's specific. Yeah. It was described in 1901 by Sir Arthur Woodward. So it's one of the earlier described dinosaurs. Santiago Roth collected the fossils for the Museo de la Plata. And there's some fun quotes from Sir Arthur Woodward's description. Quote, all of these teeth are much broken. (laughs) And also, quote, unfortunately, nothing is known of the jaws which bore similar teeth during the Cretaceous period in the northern hemisphere. But it seems probably that the completion of the tooth sockets and the paucity of successional teeth in Geniodectes are characters indicating that it was one of the latest and most specialized members of its race, end quote. Well, it's from the Cretaceous, so I guess it is one of the latest ones. Yeah, and specialized, probably, because by the Cretaceous, they're pretty specialized. Yeah. Geniodectes is the second non-avian dinosaur described from South America after Lonchosaurus, and it's the first known theropod described from South America. For a while, Geniodectes was thought to be a nomum dubium because the fossils were so fragmentary, but then a redescription in 2004 by Oliver Raoult found it to be valid. Yeah, it makes sense because if the only difference between it and Ceratosaurus is the number of premaxillary teeth, we see that with things like Tyrannosaurus where they say, well, this is just a younger individual They lost teeth as they got older. They got more teeth as they got older. So, yeah, I could see how without really closely looking at the bone and trying to see for subtle differences, you might assume that. Yeah, and then because this is one of the earlier discovered and described dinosaurs, it's been thought to be a lot of different things. So at one point it was thought to be a megalosaurid, then tyrannosaurid, a theropoda in Certesitis, and a bellosaurid. But the 2004 redescription and reexamination, they removed the holotype from its quote-unquote artificial matrix, and they found it to not have abelosaurid and tyrannosaur traits, but to have many neoceratosaurin traits. And they found that it probably came from the Cerro Castaña member of the Cerro Barcino formation, because before it wasn't completely clear where the fossils had been found. It was just known that they were found in red sandstone. Hmm. So Oliver Raup reprepared the type material and he wrote, quote, as is the case with the bones of the skull, the dentaries are rather massive. <laughs> so that's the main thing we know about this dinosaur. The teeth in the premaxilla were close together and in a, quote, overlapping and echelon pattern. So it's a parallel formation at a slanted angle. <laughs> and I had to look pretty closely at the pictures to see it, partly because I had to look up what that pattern meant. <laughs> So I guess what they mean is that rather than the teeth being straight in a row, sort of like lined up like a bunch of knives, they're sort of tilted a little bit, and then they line up with one another. It's kind of hard to describe, but yeah, like they're they're not quite straight forward and back. They're like a little bit angled inward. And they all are a little slanted too. It's one of those, it's hard to tell from the pictures unless you're looking at the separate dentaries. Yeah, because the pictures are all from the side, so you can't really see the difference in how they're aligned because this is more like a top-down view mm-hmm. that you need to see. So the right side of the skull of Geniodectes was slightly deformed, but not the left, and it also had long maxillary tooth crowns that were longer than, quote, the minimal height of a dentary, end quote. And that's also something only seen so far in Geniodectes and Ceratosaurus. 
So the teeth might go past the start of the jaw, maybe. So sort of like on a saber-toothed cat, probably not that extreme, but like maybe a little bit of overlap of the jaw itself. The illustration doesn't show the mouth closed, so it's hard to say. But yes, based on some of the paleo art. The teeth look long enough that maybe they could pull that off. Yeah, (laughs) just looks like a big mouth full of teeth. (laughs) Full of large teeth. Yeah. (laughs) And that's pretty much all we know about it because that's all they found. Yep. So Geniodectes helps show early diversification of neoceratosaurs in South America. And the fossils are now at the Museo de la Plata in Argentina. And other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place as Geniodectes included titanosaurs like Patagotitan and Carcharodontosaurids like Tyrannotitan. And our fun fact of the day is that from a phylogenetic standpoint, and the only standpoint that really matters, humans are cynodonts. Oh. I did not know that before. I didn't either. (laughs) So the early cynodonts were a major part of the ecosystem in the late Permian and early Triassic. The name cynodont means dog teeth. And if you look at a cynodont, it does look sort of like a hybrid between a dog and a lizard, I would say. And that's more or less what they were. They still sprawled a little bit, but they did have some features that all modern mammals have. Like they have jaws that are fairly similar to ours. There are a lot more fused bones in the jaw, for example, than there are in things like dinosaurs. They could also breathe through their nose, bypassing their mouth, which I didn't realize was something that early animals couldn't do. That would be really annoying if like their nasal passages kind of just redirect back into their mouth. Yeah. So then they couldn't eat while they breathe. Oh. But cynodonts could. And so can all modern mammals. And I guess we have cynodonts to thank for evolving that feature. That's probably why we're here today. It's Yeah, it's definitely helpful. I think there are some animals that bypass more than we do because sometimes... It feels like we can't breathe and, say, drink like we should be able to. Mm. But some other animals seem to be better at that. Maybe it's just my issue that I don't know how to do it properly. (laughs) But we couldn't do it at all if it wasn't for cytodots. Unless it evolved slightly earlier, I suppose that's also possible. Unfortunately, we are not dicynodonts. So it's not one of those things where a dicynodont is a type of cynodont. Dicynodonts are a completely different group. They are two dog teeth in Latin, Hmm. but the two part is because they have a pair of tusks and then the cynodont part is because they look like a cynodont, I think. Dicynodonts are thought to be herbivorous and they range in size from basically guinea pig to elephant size. It's quite a range. Yeah, I think dicynodonts are really cool. So I was a little disappointed that we're not evolved from them as well. But I think Dicynodonts should be considered the cows of the Triassic. Okay. <laughs> because of this reason, we can have cows of every period. I haven't figured out the Jurassic yet, but we know the Cretaceous and the Triassic at this point. Dicynodonts are also part of the larger group called synapsids, so they're not too far unrelated to us because we're obviously synapsids. Synapsids are the group that started at the end of the Carboniferous about 310 million years ago or about. 60 to 70 million years before dinosaurs evolved. Synapsids include cynodonts, animals like Dimetrodon, and then obviously modern mammals since we are cynodonts. The dinosaur-related sister group to synapsids are the sauropsids, and those also evolved right around 310 million years ago. Sauropsid means lizard faces. Hmm. It makes it easy to remember that that's the one that includes dinosaurs. 
and then lots of lizard things too, like all modern reptiles. By the way, humans definitely should be considered fish since we evolved from them, but fish is a paraphyletic group, so we don't include humans in fish, or really most land animals. It's weird to think about. Yeah. I don't really like paraphyletic groups that don't include ancestors. I think it just makes things confusing. And it's the reason why birds are considered dinosaurs, because dinosauria is a monophyletic group, but birds are not considered reptiles because reptiles are a paraphyletic group. Paraphyletic groups are no fun. I like the fact that we're cynodonts, <laughs> <laughs> but I can't say we're reptiles because it's paraphyletic. Right. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast apps. So you don't miss out on any new episodes. And consider joining our community if you haven't already. Patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.